0: Now, if you're concerned about the profound impact that mass immigration is having on this nation and its communities, I invite you to attend an important New Culture Forum conference on immigration that we are holding in London on Saturday the 7th of October. Now, we are bringing together leading experts and other notable and well-known voices who will speak openly candidly and honestly about the problems arising from mass immigration and why the government seems incapable of controlling it. So I very much hope you'll join us at this crucial conference. Tickets and further information are available in the description below this video as well as on Eventbrite and via our website newcultureforum.org.uk and remember NCF members get discounted admission. Thank you, and I hope to see you there.
1: You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name's Harrison Pitt. I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm thrilled to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist, and our special guest this week, Matt Goodwin, political scientist at the University of Kent, and author most recently of Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. Now, Matt, I think many of our viewers will ne- by, by this point be familiar with your analysis and critique mm. of what you call uh, the new elite. Uh, but, but I wonder on which particular political issue in this country at the moment do you think their influence is most pernicious today? Probably
2: immigration. Okay. That would be the big one. I think if you look at where we're going in this country with migration, it's very much a continuation of the, the pre-Brexit era. Um, many voters obviously turned to Brexit and then to Boris Johnson to lower overall migration. Since then obviously we've seen net migration reach uh, over 600,000, 600, 1.4 million visas issued last year, liberalisation of the international student mm. system um, and we've, we've seen escalating an escalating loss of control at, at the border. Um, so that that issue now, for me, is 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 already a top three issue for all voters. Will become a more important issue as we go through the twenty twenties into the twenty thirties, and will have a profound impact on our politics. So so migration. I think is very much the symbol of this growing gulf between the ruling class and everybody else.
1: And given the fact that Boris Johnson was was the person who was supposed who well, he seemingly personified the the realignment in British politics that many people had been hoping for, why do you think he was so uh, deft on the question of immigration, he, prom, promising not only failing to, to control immigration but actually liberalizing our immigration our, our legal immigration system as he did? Because he's a liberal. Uh, he's not a conservative. <laughs> and I think that essentially
2: is is what many voters misunderstood about Boris Johnson. It's what many people in the conservative movement misunderstand about Boris Johnson. I mean, he he is an old school bohemian. I mean, mm. he's cosmopolitan. He, he does not view migration in the same way that many Brexiteers and post-2019 conservatives uh, view it. He is instinctively comfortable with migration, as is many of the as are, sorry, many of the people around the Johnson camp and indeed the Conservative Party. And I think fundamentally, the reason the Conservatives are in so much difficulty today as as we talk in September, 2023, is because they've lost touch with their electorate on migration. If you look at 2019 Conservatives, migration is their second top issue. 80% of them say it's being managed badly. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of them want it reduced but there is no longer any outlet in British politics for voters who want to see that promise delivered. Mm. Uh, There's reform, there's reclaim, there's some parties that are trying to fill that space, but there is no mainstream party committed to lowering
3: overall migration. Do you think it's it's as simple as just ideological left versus right, liberal versus conservative? Because when I look at when I look at Italy, for example, Giorgia Maloney um, came into power, you know, tr- screaming high, um, you know, kind of high octane conservative values at every opportunity that she could get. And about a year in, she said, okay, we actually need to bring in like eight hundred thousand. Immigrants over the next four years. I mean, you can just look at the situation in Lampedusa. There's nothing, you know, the Italian government could handle this in a day, but they seem unwilling to. They're actually, they're again, they're trying to import people massively. So I think it must be hard for somebody like Boris or Maloney when they come into office and you know someone basically brings out the books and says these are the figures, and by the way, like if we wanted to have the a proper amount of British citizens in a UK context, you know, our birth rate should have been double what it is 20 years ago. It's too late for that. We need a kind of quick fix now. And they're trying to get here desperately. So I wonder how much of this is ideological of like how much Britain or, or Italy or any sort of Western nation should just be a home for the world and how much of it is simply that people realize we will not be able to continue on paying pensions out, you know, continuing with their same level of services unless we radically um, kind of alter our population and and basically hit it with a a booster shot of fresh labor. Well,
2: where we are today reflects active policy choices that have been made over the last 25 years. Uh, Britain was not always a country of mass migration. This is a post 2004 experiment. And by the way, Britain has not always been a country of migration, contrary to what you might hear. Um, So this is a very recent political experiment. Now the narrative that we therefore just need to maintain the status quo, if not increase it, because it's the only thing that will drive growth, productivity, um, fill labor shortages, is a narrative that I would argue comes from an orthodoxy that is broken. If you look at the last 25 years, we've not had high rates of growth and productivity alongside mass migration. We've Mm. had quite the opposite. Um, we've we've got, I think, an orthodoxy around the Treasury and the sort of economic community that views migration as a quick fix to Britain's long-term economic problems. What we've not had in this country is a, a leadership that has been willing to take on that orthodoxy. And we saw what happened even with Liz Truss when she tried to take on some of the economic orthodoxy, whatever your personal view of Liz Truss, the fact remains that challenging the status quo was was not permitted mm. and is not permitted so if you are trying to think about well what could we do you know what we could do is have a high-skilled migration policy that is genuinely high-skilled,
1: mm-hmm.
2: within the context of lower overall numbers, mm. while investing in doing some of the things that you're talking about. So reskilling the adult population, encouraging family development, adopting some of the policies that we've seen work elsewhere in other parts of Europe. Uh, if you start viewing this as a long-term policy challenge rather than a short-term quick fix, and and fundamentally over the last 25 years, both our political and business leaders have become addicted to cheap labor from abroad to satisfy a political mm. economy that is based around consumption, Is it right? pa- And that, that essentially is the problem in Britain.
3: Is it um, part, go on. What do you think it says about British democracy and yeah. sovereignty that, first of all, we had Boris Johnson who came in on a landslide, mm. essentially, um, who was then sent off by the Americans to Ukraine to basically tell Vladimir Zelensky, there will be no deal. Mm. We are going to continue to escalate things with Russia. Mm. Uh, Boris is then kind of kicked out through the back door due to various scandals and mismanagement. Uh, Liz Truss Mm. is voted in. She lasts six weeks, not as long as a lettuce, um, before she's basically, um, I don't even know, replaced Mm. by Rishi Sunak on the whim of kind of international money men and sort of this managerial elite. Uh, And then Rishi gets in, who's polling abysmally, Nobody nobody really voted for him. Nobody really wanted him. Um, He's not going to make it into 2025, you know, as every indication seems to suggest. And then there'll be Keir Starmer, who again is not polling especially high. He's not especially well liked. Mm. So why can Britain not find a leader that they can actually elect in who champions the will of the people who are electing them? It seems like If there was some young, intelligent, enterprising figure, they should be able to run away with it. But there's nobody stepping up to the plate.
2: Well, we are in a majoritarian system that's dominated by two big parties, and those two parties are effectively in charge of elite selection. So you're not going to get a new counter-elite through the established big parties. And if you want to take on those two big parties within a first-past-the-post system, the barriers to entry are enormous. Mm. As UKIP discovered in 2015, you know, 13 million votes. One, one seed, uh, <laughs> Did have two at one point, but then they yeah. had one. Yes. And, and as every other challenger has discovered, unless you've got that deep concentration of support across large parts of the country, mm. it is almost impossible to take on the two big parties. So then your only choice is to essentially reshape the two big parties from within. And that's where people are saying, look, it's time to reshape the Conservative Party from within. But then you've got to take on the donor class who I would argue are largely invested in the maintenance of the status quo, and you've got to take on CCHQ, which is largely in charge of candidate selection. Mm. So, are you really going to be able to replace the dominant faction within the Conservative Party, which is essentially what's happened in the US? The only reason Donald Trump was able to change the dominant faction within the Republican movement was because of the primary. Exactly, system. the structure is very different. That it's a completely different it, system. It, Whereas in in Britain, you know, you would have to launch an assault on the party system that is so widespread and has such support beyond London and the university towns that uh, you'd have to get to that tipping point in the system of polling around 25, 30% in order to then replace one of the two big parties. And of course, that's what the Labour Party did. The Labour Party replaced the Liberals. It's also what the SDP came very close to doing in the 1980s when it took on the Labour Party and fell short by about two or three percentage Mm. points. Mm. It's what the Canadian uh, Reform Party did in 1993. It's not impossible,
1: Mm.
2: but it's very, very difficult. And you need a constellation of big issues that people really care about and the elite is out of touch on a demographically coherent electorate that you can mobilize, which of course UKIP had and Nigel Farage had, very working class, very culturally conservative, and you need money. You need lots and lots of money in order to turn a small party into a serious proposition. And I'm not talking 10 million quid, I'm talking 20, 30, 40 million For, for, For
1: which of those reasons do you think that Uh, our first populist moment, such as such as it was between sort of, I would say, around 2013 to 2016, Mm. from the European elections when Mm. UKIP won to Brexit itself happening. Mm. Why has that been so short lived? Why why has that failed to generate anything long term?
2: Well, I mean, I would argue that UKIP had a, had an enormous long-term impact on the country and that were it not for UKIP, we would not have had the referendum, we would not have had the vote for Brexit, we would not have had Boris Johnson, we would not have had the realignment of our politics. And I do think, as I've written in other books, even though he never won a seat into yes. a seat in Parliament, Nigel Farage will go down in history as the most influential politician of the current era. I think his strategic mistake, and I suspect he would tell you the same thing, was doing the deal, was not doing the deal with Boris Johnson in 2019, because I think that was essential to ensuring that Brexit was delivered and avoiding the parliamentary crisis, but was winding up the Brexit party, was finishing um, the Brexit party, bringing it to a close. I think had they kept that going, Mm -hmm during covid it would have put pressure on the during government. during the rise of inflation during the cost of living crisis and now i think the brand awareness the the mm. the the impact would have been much greater and of course the problems that reform are experiencing now you know they don't have much brand recognition they are struggling with visibility yes they're reaching 10% in the polls but arguably in the current context they should be on 20 25% mm. i think that that would have been remedied by the Brexit Party continuing. The last point I'd say is look across Europe now. When I wrote a book, National Populism, in 2018, I argued that populism was here to stay. And it was probably going to become a bigger force than we'd seen in 2017 with Marine Le Pen and 2016 with Trump. Now look at what we can see. You know, Alternative for Germany is reaching record levels in in the percent Georgia Maloney in Italy. Sweden Democrats are effectively running... Politics in Sweden, Vox in Spain has has has, has been doing reasonably well. Chega in Portugal, you know we've got Le Pen poised most likely to have a serious run again at the presidency uh, in a couple of years. Um, Trump p- could plausibly, I, I, I genuinely now think he has a he has a realistic shot, uh, um, de- depending on how the legal cases go, uh, becoming president. So so national populism, if anything, has become mm. more entrenched. And remember, it was in the aftermath of the refugee crisis in 2014-15, which is now rising again, that these parties reached their peak. And we mm. did not have inflation then. Mm. We did not have peak inflation. Now, if you look at the literature on, on, uh, on the effects of inflation, it shows very clearly that in the years after inflation peaks, you get support for anti-establishment populists and you get social unrest. And you can see both of those things in the mm-hmm. dutch farmers protests in the yellow vests in the blade runners in london what we now have is this very toxic combination of cost of living crisis record migration enduring inequalities and that's why i think britain will inevitably go back to a populist moment and catch up with other european countries
1: do you think that Pop, so populism there are two ways in which we could think about populism having staying power. We could think of it as having staying power in the sense that uh, it, it continues to exert an influence on our politics mm. and I think that's certainly true, and it has been true since two thousand and eighteen and we can see it intensifying now but there's, the, the, there's that and then but you talk in your re- recent book about the new elite mm. and uh, often it, it seems to me that um, it 's very difficult to achieve anything a, a, of enduring value in politics unless you to some extent have a portion of the elite on board with you, since these tend to be the people who really make politics happen. To what extent is is populism bound to spook what you call the new elite, but not really to refashion them in any meaningful sense?
2: I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think in the aftermath of, of the Brexit rebellion, as we can see now there has been no fundamental transformation it's, it's of policy in a formality really we've left the european union but yeah. leveling up has certainly not happened migration has not changed you have a wonderful
1: statistic don't you i can't remember it off the top of my head about how m- more money has been spent housing asylum seekers than has been spent on leveling up in the whole of yorkshire is that correct well we now spend close to
2: £4 billion every year on the broken asylum system yes. and the latest round of levelling up funding was about £2 billion. There you go. Uh, so, so we're spending more on our asylum system than we are levelling up uh, all of Northern England, Indeed. not just Yorkshire. So um, the policy choices have not been there because the political the political elite is not there. Exactly. So Westminster has not reformed to meet the post-Brexit environment, which is why there is no mass enthusiasm for Keir Starmer, mm-hmm. there is no mass enthusiasm for Rishi Sunak. I suspect at the next election we'll see a lot of apathy, we'll see people staying at home, hunkering down, mm-hmm. um, because we have the dawn of a new consensus. I mean the pre-Brexit consensus was pro-immigration, pro-globalisation, pro-London, pro-middle-class, pro-social liberalism was essentially the elite consensus. The elite consensus post-Brexit has morphed into pro-immigration, pro-globalization, pro-big-state, pro-debt, pro-high-tax, and there is really nothing to distinguish Labor and the Conservative Party on many of these issues. Labour's even rode back on the green investment stuff. Um, They are basically committed to the same things. They're comfortable with large-scale migration, they're comfortable with the big state, they're comfortable with a high-tax burden, They're comfortable with net zero. They're comfortable with ongoing globalization. And they're comfortable with a London-centric economy built around financial services. So what's really changed? Um, Not a lot. Uh, I would also say, by the way, they're both comfortable with allowing radical progressivism to basically dominate the institutions. Uh, Neither the Conservatives nor Labour have put up any serious pushback to the, the creeping influence of
1: radical would would, would, you not, would you not even want to give them a little bit of credit on the academic freedom bill?
2: Well, that wasn't delivered by the mainstream mm. parties. That was delivered by renegade academics from outside of the mainstream like, parties. Like, um,
1: what's he called at Cambridge? Uh, um, uh, well, it was delivered by about twelve
2: of us who who designed, helped design you, the legislation, you, 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 and implemented. You were part it. of it, were you? Yeah, I mean, I've written the story of that on yeah. on my Substack about how we how we brought that piece of legislation forward, how we kind of got it got it put in place. Mm. But if you look across the board at, at gender identity theory, critical race theory, if you look at um, uh, the way in which institutions are being reshaped around these belief systems, yeah. from the civil service breaching impartiality to schools teaching political radical political ideology, schools are supposed to be impartial, mm-hmm. uh, no mainstream party has seriously put up any defense mm. against. Uh, these ideologies, which is why I do think for people who care about presenting an alternative, um, there has never really been a time where there's been this much space in British politics for something like that.
3: So there's so much space, which I agree with you on, you know, I can't help but compare and contrast it to America. I think when Trump got in 2016, they, everybody thought like, okay, we've got the guy now, we can get things done and then nothing really happened because he was bogged down in, in the swamp or the deep state for four years, um, and then they booted him out of there. It seems to me that even if you could get a person in, like let's say Farage was to run for PM and, and, and take it in, he would be very limited in the same way that Trump was because he doesn't have a kind of coterie of dedicated, like you put counter elite around him. Mm. But there's nobody in America, there's organizations like American Moment, there's a few of them down there. Who are busy kind of building up this sort of new managerial bureaucracy for this person when he comes in maybe it's trump maybe it's someone else why is nobody doing this in britain why how do how do we catalyze a new elite here i think there are some attempts to do that
2: i think there are some civil society organizations that are tr- thinking about elite formation mm. you know you think about some of the things manira Mutz has been doing since leaving office with boris johnson uh, you think about the kind of emergence of this alternative ecosystem around um, you know, alternative media that we've got in this country now. I think all of these things are very interesting and potentially impactful, but you're right. I think what's happened is there is a recognition that mobilizing popular sovereignty is not enough, mm. that essentially, unless you are taking on the managerial bureaucracy and reshaping it, mm. then you're never really going to get anything done, which is why, you know, Trump and his entourage have now, you know, said the first thing they will do is is essentially replace uh, layers of the administrative state mm. in order to try and you know, get things done. In the UK, uh, again on Substack, I've had a bit of a back and forth with Dominic Cummings about this. About um, you know, he, he he rightly argues one thing that needs to happen is complete reform of the civil service and the institutions, but actually. The technocratic part of that isn't sufficient. There also needs to be a wholesale, in my view, a wholesale reshaping of the policy process, so it is more in tune with the views of ordinary people, mm-hmm. ordinary voters. Uh, we need to break up the institutions to give them a much bring in a much wider range of voices in media, in culture, in creative industries, in politics, um, which which you could do quite quite easily. But you're right. I think I think you know. Max Weber once said, "Politics is the art of drilling slowly through hard wooden boards." Right? That you know you. And I think many populists have now realised, yeah. after the revolts of the 2010s, yes. that it's not enough just to get votes in the yeah. in the polling
1: station. You've got to understand how to restructure the well, state. I think I think this is one of the few, few uh, things that, that distinguishes Viktor Orbán from many other populists mm-hmm. uh, because. He, You know, my general view of populism is that though I'm I'm encouraged by it in many respects, and I think it's it's a necessary corrective. It it has the power to steal headlines in in an election year, but it it often lacks the vision to define a century or to define define a period of decades. Orban realises that it's, it's, it's necessary to try and foster and cultivate a future elite of hungarian patriots and that's why you know a lot of state money has been poured into the matthias corvinus collegium institute which is which is you know it's not an indoctrination factory of sorts but it is you know tr- transmitting values to important you know um, nation enhancing values to young people in a way that we would the conservative party here would never in a million years fund an institution of that sort and as you rightly point out they presided over 13 years of government in which you know the the the, the 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 wildfire of woke fury in our education system has has spread has spread but even has f- spread even further. But
2: just on that, I mean, the fundamental point is that the Conservative Party is not a serious party. Mm. That's the fundamental point. The Conservative Party, intellectually mm. and professionally, mm. is no longer a serious political party. It does not invest in ideas. The intellectual calibre of Conservative MPs has collapsed, <laughs> and it does not yes. invest. In the development of a future elite for the country that is united by a coherent conservative philosophy. Yep. There are too many Conservative MPs who think the answers to today's problems lie in revisiting 1988 yep. or <laughs> lie in essentially emulating the Liberal Democrats.
1: E- even even the alleged right of the Conservative Party is we're not just talking about the so-called one nation. T- no, no, tories, people, I'm like talk, J- people like I, Jacob Rees-Mogg no, as
2: well. no, 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 of the the mm. Party and it was once said that the big no, the, the long standing strength of the Conservative Party in Britain was that it understood the power of reinvention it understood the need to reinvent to meet the moment yes and today 's conservatives have fundamentally failed to reinvent yes, so, and it may well be that in the aftermath of a heavy defeat in twenty four which the polls suggest will mm. happen, mm. that reinvention is is forced on the party, perhaps from outside the party yeah. or is led in a different direction by some kind of, of yes. renegade movement. That, that, that momentum is building. You can feel it in the conversations and the discussions. Yes. The sense that this party has simply reached a dead end, yes. that it is in a cul-de-sac and it does not know how to get out of that cul-de-sac and reconnect with the rest of the country.
3: Hmm. Yes. If you were a betting man, what would, you, what would you place your money on? Do you think it'll be reform or do you think it'll be replacement?
1: I think, by, by reform you
3: mean yeah, reform, reform of the of conservative, the Party? Of the yeah. Conservative
1: Party yeah.
2: I think if we continue down this trajectory mm. of low growth high debt mass immigration and social unrest I think it is inevitable there is going to emerge a new political party in British politics mm. and I think that party would end up bringing together the disparate factions that exist that are led by people who have a very sincere uh, concern about the state of the country, whether that is the Reform Party, the Social Democrat Party, a big chunk perhaps of the Conservative Party, figures on the old left of the Labour Party and a lot of apathetic people. Remember Mm. Brexit was pushed over the line not because Conservatives mobilised, but because a lot of people who never participated in politics saw an opportunity to smash the consensus. Mm. And there are millions of people out there who are still waiting for an opportunity to re-engage with the system. Is
1: is there no evidence that they've been completely demoralised by the last seven years or so? I I think a lot of people have. I think if you look at,
2: you know, I spend a lot of my time polling voters and if you ask them. Who do you trust to solve these big issues? The economy, immigration. Uh, Today, consistently, the most popular answer on some of these big policy challenges is none of them. I don't know. So I don't think it's just that people have given up on politics. I think confidence in the capacity of the system to resolve the big challenges that Britain faces, I think has collapsed. Mm. I simply think people look at our politicians and no longer have confidence in them mm. to to deliver economic growth, to bring down national debt, to control the national borders, to lower legal migration, to even put the interests of the nation first when it comes to globalization and big business. Mm. It's not hard to identify you know, the issues that you would campaign oh, yes.
1: on to challenge that consensus. You mani- write a manifesto, a decent you know. manifesto in a week or so. Uh, but, but, okay, But I suppose the reason I ask that is that you say that, well, you know, the the prospects of a, re- a replacement, uh, the, the ingredients for a replacement are there because there are people who are sitting out and would be, as you put it as a moment or so ago, very eager to vote for some, uh, some kind of realignment. But if they've really been so demoralised by the last seven or eight years, I, I suppose that's why I asked if they're demoralised. Even if we were to have you know, a second populist moment, to what what extent would people feel that it represented any hope given what's happened over the last, I don't know, since 2019?
2: Well, I think the story from much of the rest of Europe is people have not yet given up on the idea of trying to change the consensus and the direction of travel. And it's also, I think, post 2016, it's been very clear that the ruling class doesn't really have much of an interest in meeting voters on many of these big questions Mm. and that is going to, in some form or other, find its expression. Whether that's in regard to crime, which is becoming a big issue, whether it's in regard to borders, whether it's in regard to the institutions, history, identity and so on. Um, The question is who's going to emerge to lead it? Mm. Question is what, what exact form is it going to take? Uh, will that person or movement be clever enough to position themselves above left and right? Mm. You know, there's no point coming out and saying, you know, you're the new conservatives if actually a big chunk of the disillusioned masses yeah. are on the left. Mm. Mm. There, is a kind of, there is an opportunity to build a cross-class coalition uh, in a way that, uh, say, a conservative wouldn't be able to do. Sure. And that was always, of course, UKIP's strength, and mm. Nigel Farage's strength, was they were as popular in mm. the old Labour heartlands as they were in the Tory shire.
1: Despite having their origins in sort of early 90s disillusioned Thatcherism. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I mean, you can, I've written about this in many books over the years, but you can, there was a by-election in 2011, I think in Oldham, Mm. when UKIP saved their deposit, they just got over 5%, and it was around that point that Nigel Farage and Paul Nuttall realised the reason they were doing well in those areas was because many old Labour voters, were suddenly voting Hmm. for the UK Independence Party. And the moment they realized that, they then put the pedal down on that. And very few people noticed it until the Brexit referendum. And then when Sunderland and Stoke-on-Trent suddenly came out and voted en masse for Brexit, a lot of people then understood
1: how critically important UKIP was. Can I say something very quickly? I, I think there were also pretty strong harbingers of it in, in 2015 as well. The fact that, because obviously the big fear in 2015 for the Conservative Party was that UKIP was going to eat into its vote mm. and it actually turned out that Ed Miliband was probably more uh, effectively harmed by the UKIP vote in those key swing states than, I, than I, the yeah. Conservatives were.
2: I briefed Ed Miliband and his, well, his team in 2012-2013. Um, And we said at the time, Labour is going to have an enormous problem with the populist right. And they, at the time, had the view that the rise of UKIP and populism would mainly hurt the Conservatives and help the Labour Party. They never really understood the extent to which many Labour voters were culturally conservative. Now, you'll know from North America, Mm. Evan, you know, the experience of you know, the Reagan Democrats and blue collar conservatism. Yep. But in Britain, that, you know, that was a very novel idea. People hadn't quite got their heads around the fact yep. that you know, a lot of these working class voters would join Eurosceptics and there would be this kind of big alliance.
0: Probably, What's pro-
2: happened since though, is nobody has
3: really sustained that. I think it was actually, it was in your, in your book, Values, Voice and Virtue, that you pointed out that the majority of Britain, correct me if I'm wrong on this, is culturally conservative, but, but economically liberal. And it's basically the one thing you're not allowed to be. Economically left-wing, you mean? Yes. yes.
2: Well, well, eco- economically left-wing in the sense of wanting to reform the system so it's a bit it's fairer for workers, mm. but they're not pro-redistribution. Mm. So this is often a key point that many conservatives misunderstand. They think, yeah. oh, economically left-wing, you mean they're pro-redistribution. Yeah. No, what I mean is they quite like public services to be in the hands of the state because they don't think they're run very effectively by the market. Um, they'd like the, the the playing field to be leveled so workers have a better shot. But they are aspirational. Mm. They want to rise up the ladder. They certainly don't support wa- widespread Jeremy Corbyn-style redistribution. Mm. But on these cultural questions, I just did a poll on crime uh, last week, which I, I put in my substack. Um The vast majority of Brits in this country are so conservative on crime mm. and immigration, by mm. the way, um, and, and to, 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 to a certain extent, on tradition and identity. And the Conservative Party has always been reluctant to lean into it. It's why Keir Starmer is talking tough on crime, because mm. Labour know this. Labour know on these cultural issues, a big chunk of their electorate is can adrift.
3: I, can I ask you, I think this is kind of a very revelatory um, anecdote, I guess, where, if I'm not wrong, the majority of the British public is in favour of reinstating the death penalty. It's a, it, it depends on how you ask the question. About half of the country would
2: say I support the death penalty if you said, how about for child murderers? It would go up to 75%. How about for terrorists and police killers? It would go up to 65, 70%. But again,
3: there doesn't seem to be any sort of political movement or coterie trying to like reintroduce this, even though it seems if it's 75%, hmm. it's a pretty obvious winner. Well, the death penalty has become
2: a little bit more divisive over the last 10, 15 years than it once was, Um, but there's absolutely no doubt if you had a political movement that came out and said, look, longer sentences for criminals, more police on the streets, no politicization of the police service, um, you know, life means life, um, you know, all of that stuff uh, would go down very well. In the same way that if you had a party that came out and said, I want a national referendum on immigration, reducing immigration to 100,000 or less, or reducing migration to where it was in 1997 when New Labour came in, which was about 50,000 versus 600,000 today, uh, that would be very popular. Um, But we're in a consensus where that won't be offered or delivered to the country because neither party has an interest in inflaming these divisions, which cut across their electorates.
3: So the US has also got like a massive problem right now with illegal immigration. It's insane. I mean, some of the videos of people coming through like literally like the holes in the wall that Trump didn't build. It's, you know, just like a stream of people day in day out. And, you know, I, I talked to US conservatives and like, we need to get like every single legal immigrant out of this country. I mean, I legally immigrated to the US. I got a, I got a passport, so I'm kind of in favor of that. At the same time, there's like, 15 million illegals in America, mm. and, and it's spread out over a giant continent, really. Mm. So you're, it's just never gonna happen. It's mm. like when liberals say, like we need to round up all the guns. There's mm. more guns in America than there are people. It's not gonna happen. Mm. There'd be like a Waco on every third block. Oh yeah. But in this country, it seems that, okay, let's say you put a stop to immigration, zero illegal immigration, you got legal immigration down to an appropriate number. What do you do with all the illegal immigrants that are already here? I mean, I, I look at like the barge, which I think is hilarious. And I mean, it, it looks more like a, like a hotel than a, or than a sort of transitory way off the island. So what's going on? Well, right? well, the first thing to say is, obviously, as we talk in September
2: 23, the Labour Party's put out its proposals for how it's going to try and stop illegal migration. Rishi Sunak's put out his proposals. The blunt reality is that if you want to stop illegal immigration, you've got to do a hell of a lot more than just go after the gangs. The National Crime Agency has been explicit, and I wrote about this this week. The NCA has said stopping the gangs is nowhere near enough because once you ta- once you take one off the streets of France there's another one it's like whack-a-mole you just you really you cannot solve this problem by going after organized crime because at the end of the day all people need is a dinghy and a walkie-talkie and they're on the channel and they're going so so the gangs is it, it's in, it's important but it's a background factor what we need is both of a functioning system of dealing with claims the moment they happen and immediately deporting people who do not meet the set criteria which at the moment we're only really doing with Albanians and and, and a couple of other groups um, and secondly having a very loud active deterrent like Rwanda now everybody in Westminster will tell you Rwanda's not popular wrong more voters support the Rwanda policy than oppose it uh, having an active third country where you will send illegal migrants for processing will become the consensus position across much of Europe in the next 5 years i would predict that yeah i think you're right so 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 you need an active deterrent you need a very strong police presence the idea that Keir Starmer has suggested that we should have a quota system with the european with our european neighbours is absurd they've already branded that delusional why is it absurd because if we were to do that on the basis of our population and economy it would be equivalent to us taking somewhere between 75,000 and 150,000 migrants every year. Uh, It didn't happen before when we were in the European Union. We returned barely any. Hmm. Uh, And the idea that that is a long-term sustainable policy in an organization like the EU, which cannot even solve its current refugee crisis, I think is a non-starter. My view would be we need to develop a policy formula for what I would call Fortress Britain. We need a serious active deterrent with much stronger security presence on the border, uh, much faster processing. We need to be willing to leave the the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, and reform the Human Rights Act and the new labor legislation that has allowed us to effectively create all of these loopholes for illegal migration. Rishi Sunak will get bounced, Mm. I suspect, into having to discuss or debate leaving the ECHR. Hmm. Uh, And I think ultimately that's what we're going to need.
1: Well, In terms of, so I think the most important thing, I certainly agree there needs to be a credible deterrent and there needs to be a very efficient way of deporting people once their asylum claims fail as I I think most of them should fail. Um, uh, But but one of the points Ben Habib made when he was sitting in that chair, Mm -hmm. what must have been a week or so ago, two weeks ago, uh, at this point was that uh, we shouldn't even be allowing it to get to a situation in which illegal migrants can get their feet either onto a British boat or onto British soil in the first place, we should be turning these people around in, in the Channel and in, in invoking international law to do so, rather than ferrying them in as we currently do, or as the, the whatever it's called, the Lifeboat Service, the R what's it called, the RNLI, the R&L. R&L presently yeah. does. Would you would you agree with that? Do you think that's a credible um, policy proposal?
2: I think it's it's. I'd much potentially I'd much. It, it, I understand the logic behind it but I'm also of the view that I just want people to stop risking their lives in the channel and I don't want to do anything that's going to encourage them to lose their lives in the channel. I would much rather just have an active deterrent in the first place to make it absolutely clear across the states where migrants are leaving from that if they come to Britain they will be immediately sent elsewhere for Mm. processing. And we have the court judgment pending this autumn on the Rwanda policy. The, the, the Supreme Court one. The yeah. Supreme Court judgment. If yeah. that goes in Rishi Sunak's favor, we will have planes taking off before the general election. Uh, and if you speak to anybody in Australia, they would argue that having, and indeed as our own national crime agency has mm. said, you, can, uh, you know, our version of the FBI, you cannot solve this problem unless you have an active deterrent. Of
1: course, but the, the the Australians did also turn away people in the sea, didn't they? They did, I think it's a lot, I
2: think the dynamics of that are probably a lot more straightforward for Australia than they are for us. Uh, but uh, But I would, I'm very in favor of having an active strong deterrent because, you know, the other thing about the sort of you know the constant talk about safe and legal routes and mm. let's 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 yeah, let, let's, let, ma- let's move into Labour's plan is nobody can tell you what the upper numbers will be. Yeah. Nobody can tell you what the upper numbers will be. Now, if we've got a hundred million people around the world actively displaced, looking to migrate, mm. and what we're seeing in Lampedusa and Europe is the beginning. Mm. It is not the end. It is the beginning of a yeah. migration crisis. Mm-hmm then we need to get real about the kinds of numbers and the kind of impact this is going to have over the next 25 to 50 years.
1: Getting rid of illegal immigration by making it legal doesn't seem to me to be the most intelligent way of proceeding about this. That's essentially (laughs) what
2: Joe Biden's done. What Joe Biden's done is said, look, I'll allow 30,000 in and then we'll repackage them as legal migrants. And it's a bit like, you know, you're changing the definition of burglary. Yeah. So you don't have to count burglary <laughs> in the crime statistics. Exactly. And that essentially is what's happened. So that's why lots of progressives in Britain are saying do the same as Joe Biden. Because essentially they're supportive of open borders. And, and Ursula. And, von and the that line. I don't think it's a sustainable position either for the British electorate or for safety and security. Ursula. And this is a safety and security issue. Um, it's a national security
1: issue. Ursula von der Leyen said the same thing uh, a couple of days ago in her meeting with Georgia Maloney. George a. Maloney wants in the Mediterranean there to exist. A, a sort of EU navy which will con, contend with this problem and, and turn boats away in the Australian fashion. And uh, Ursula von der Leyen was apparently much more keen on the idea of just opening up more safe and legal routes, which, just, as you say, means making what is presently illegal legal and saying, problem solved.
3: Jesus Christ. Well, <laughs> <laughs> t- t- turning a bit, um, I-, I read your latest Substack yesterday morning. Uh, We've got the new class of 2023 coming into universities, and it seems like there's there's a few questions I want to ask you about these people. One, do you think that do you have any hope that a new kind of counter elite can be pulled from our current sort of university cohort? Do you see any do you see any hopeful signs? Two, what do you make of the massively exacerbating uh, mental health crisis with young people? Yeah. And and three, um, why do you think young women now are so much more left wing than men, who are becoming more and more right wing, basically by the year? Yeah,
2: Yeah. well, in terms of the the Zoomers, the kind of post nineteen ninety six Gen Z, you know, these are the younger Zoomers, right? Uh, They were born in the first years who are starting now. September twenty three were born in two thousand and five. Okay, so you know, somebody once said, working in a university is the only place where you get older while everyone around you stays the same age. And that, I, I feel that every September. And uh, they are, you know, they weren't alive during nine eleven. They don't remember the Blair and Brown years. They barely remember the Cameron years. They were 10 or so when we voted for Brexit. Um, you know, these are the these are the these are the kids who have come who have come of age amid Brexit, Trump, Jeremy Corbyn, 13 years uh, of Boris toys. Johnson, Liz Truss, thirteen years of Conservative government. Um, they do lean very strongly to the left. If you look at the latest polling as we head into the next election um about eight percent of 18 to 24s are planning to vote conservative eight percent mm. the rest are basically voting for the liberal left the greens the smp the lib dems labor uh, young women as you point out are especially left-wing both culturally and politically uh now there's different theories as to why that is the case one is they're more likely to pass through higher education now than their male counterparts they're mm-hmm. outperforming men at every level of the education system uh, they are I you know I think psychologically you know there's a literature of women being more um, you know sort of um, c- conscientious and, and you know caring and, and Grieble, nurturing yeah. and so, so forth which which politically leads them predisposed to to, to to voting for the left but I think also you know what what's interesting about this generation for me there's two, there's two different views one is gen z are going to be sort of snowflakey because they've come through COVID and they've had serious mental health issues. And that is true. I was mm. teaching during COVID and the first group of students that came after the lockdowns were unrecognizable mm. relative to other students. They did no. not say a word in class. They were very anxious. They were very insecure. And this,
1: this is once you were back in This person. is once
2: we were back in person. Yeah. Not, not a single student came to my office hour during the entire semester, which is unheard of. Really? They avoided interaction. They They were used to watching everything online. Now, the students coming in now are, are a bit better, but it's very clear that mm. they have gone through a profoundly disturbing and destabilizing experience. And uh, I think that partly that reflects a failure of our leaders, by the way. I think mm. you know, the lockdowns, successive lockdowns were a catastrophe, yeah. for, and that's just one reason why I think they're a catastrophe. But there is another view, which is, you know, and we don't know, the reality is we don't know, but Gen Z may actually be a lot more resilient than we're giving them credit for. They have Their lives have already been defined by crises, you know, they have gone through, you know, COVID, um, the global financial crash, the, uh, stagnant wages, they've now got inflation, cost of living crisis. And one of the interesting things, by the way, about Gen Z at university, are the, the very high numbers who are not coming back for years two and three. So they come for the first year, and then we've got growing numbers who are just leaving university. Hmm. And if you ask them why, a lot of them will say, I just don't think this is worth it. Yeah. I don't think this is worth 30 grand of debt. I'd rather get out into the workplace, and I'd rather... And that's disproportionately men that are doing Disproportionately, yeah, often men. Often, um, my university, we have a lot of students from South London, Um, but often kids who I think are very keenly aware of the fact that the economic reality that awaits them is going to be incredibly difficult. Hmm. So they're coming into university, maybe they're having six to 10 hours of tuition a week, you know, summer's off, long breaks and i do think they are looking at the higher education model and thinking i'm not really sure this makes sense for me right now
3: do you think some of that pragmatism might eventually be reflected politically perhaps um you know the age divide that we've got among young
2: zoomers is the biggest divide we've ever had in in british political history we've never had 85, 90% of, of one generation voting one way on the political mm. landscape. If you go back to the Thatcher era, the, the age divide wasn't really there. And if you look at other European countries, by the way, it's not, like it's, not its not there yeah. at all. I mean, if you look at Maloney's voters, if you look at Orban's voters, they're, they're middle-aged young or, or, or younger. Yeah. You look at Le Pen. Sweet Sweden. Le Pen's doing very well among young women in the hospitality sector. Um, there's something unique that seems to be going on <clears throat> in the UK and to some extent the US. Yeah, it's the Anglosphere. The Anglosphere. And I, I and I wonder if that, that is a reflection of of the institutions and the extent to which they have been captured by radical progressivism. We'll have to we'll have to see.
3: Yeah, about about a year ago I was in a meeting with some kind of big conservative figures here and I, I made this point of like, look if you look at you know, name the EU country, you'll see like these massive sort of youth movements. I yeah. mean I was just watching videos of like these kids in France with like these like giant flags, it takes like a hundred people to carry on like the side of like a snowy mountain, like hooting and hollering for Marine Le Pen. And I was like, why Why don't you see any of that in the UK? Like, where is this? And not only why don't you see that? Why don't you at least see somebody trying mm. to find these people are trying to do that. And I mean, everybody just kind of stared at me like, uh, like I had three heads and I was like, we, we couldn't possibly do that here. But it seems like it's th- it, right now, it's kind of ripe for the taking if that there was somebody interested in reaching out towards younger people hmm. and saying like by the way you know like being being on the right or being conservative you know you can still like have a pint at the pub it's not you know total Tory boy well, you know fiasco it, this, it, is, it, this is one aspect of party membership that has
1: declined in this country over the last 60 70 years I mean it used to be the case of the, the sort of the high point of party membership that you know if you if you were a member of the Labour Party or a member of the Conservative Party when you'd sort of go to meetings you wouldn't necessarily just exclusively talk about politics at the the, the old labor club you'd play darts you'd drink it was a dating club essentially the young conservatives were
2: really about social networks. exactly
1: but that's completely gone and so the idea of revamping those in the mainstream parties is probably unlikely to happen but if if there were to be um you know, a, a potential replacement to the Conservative Party, this is something they should probably bear in mind if they this, want to bring young people aboard. Right yeah. like, no, yes. The one
2: thing I would say, if you look at, say, the National Conservatism Conference that That's we true. had uh, yeah. uh, earlier this year, mm. I, I looked around the room and, you know, it was a, it was a well-organized conference. Um, in terms of the people who were there, mm. it, it really was under. It was the under-40s, I yeah. could mm-hmm. consider. I'd consider under 40s to be young, um, and it was it was it was it was it was diverse. The audience was diverse: um, men, women, um, lots of lots of people from different backgrounds. And yeah. as you know, through this show and through the um, culture forum, and we can see through the ecosystem that's emerging online on YouTube and Substacks and yes. all of that stuff. You know, um, it is quite young. It feels quite vibrant. There is a kind of energy to mm. it to the shows and to sure. the interaction and the synthesis it's, between them and that just,
1: that is positive it's just not translating into party politics as it is on the continent we need to make sure that
3: that yeah. can happen because okay. it is, there's no good just meeting to have i mean I, I i work for the NatCons a little bit when the conferences come up and the reason that they ended up bringing me in was because i went to their thing in brussels over a year ago now mm. and I, I went up to um a few of the, the guys and i said look there's 30, you know, 20 year olds standing in your lobby with nothing to do, like, I'm gonna go take them out for a drink, and then they're like, oh great, you show an initiative, like, come come work for us, but, um, but even even at the NatCon conference here in London, I mean, like you said, there was tons of young people, I was shocked, yeah. and they had like, they had like kind of like a youth mm. lunch thing in the basement, yeah. but there wasn't, they had the critic drinks thing, but there wasn't really anything for, I think, young people to do specifically because they were young, there was nobody kind of fulfilling that role, so if, if you were to, speak to the NATCONs or speak to, you know, somebody who's trying to reform or replace the Conservative yeah. Party, you know, what kind of message would you would you try to impart to them to how to interface with young people who may have socially conservative values but feel betrayed by the Conservative Party? Or may not have thought about these questions at all and are kind of looking for a place to go to? Uh, I mean, you know, you're a teacher, you've spent your the last like two decades around, you know, twenty-year-olds essentially. What what is the conservative Movement in the UK as a whole not getting when it relates to you know, 20 year olds or even teenagers Well, I think
2: the people are out there. Yeah to quote the uh, the Budweiser advert You know the, the good nights are out there if you go and find them <laughs> and I think the people are out there if you go and find them But they do want to They do want to be welcomed into an ecosystem into a culture mm-hmm. and I think you know I do a lot of work with the free speech union mm-hmm. with yeah. very uh, young. the Academy of Ideas very young as well with uh, the yeah. speakeasies Uh, the university campuses and and elsewhere, I think, uh, are teaming with people who would get connected and involved and organized with those kinds of networks. I do think perhaps in the UK we're at a point now where there are so many things happening Mm. that there needs to be more coordination (laughs) among them. You know, I mean, there's so many, Shows and networks and organisations that are source of aligned, um, whether it's around the free speech issue, whether it's around the culture and the migration issue, the history issue, uh, you know, and you could take the view of letting a thousand flowers bloom, or you could say, well, actually, maybe there is. Yes. a need yeah. here to get everybody in a room and to think more systematically about how this might take shape politically in the realm of party politics or in the realm of social movement politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect that may end up
3: being the next, the next yeah. phase. I do think the UK is about four to five years behind the US on this, whereas like what is happening here now, especially in London, is like kind of like the intellectual dark web phase of what the US alternative media ecosystem was. Where everybody then had a podcast, everybody had a show, and everybody goes on each other's shows. But you know, podcasts, you know, are good. I listen to a lot of podcasts. We're on a podcast. I like podcasts, but it's it's maybe a half solution at best. Because if there's no pragmatism that's coming in behind the scenes, if there's no, like you said, coordinating or actually trying to impact policy, um, you know, nothing ever gets done. Which then, even as things get worse, you get much more things to bitch about on camera. Yes. You know, it's like the famous MSNBC line: "Like Trump might be terrible for America, but he's great for MSNBC." It's like kind of the opposite way: like if Labour gets in, it's great for us to talk about. It's not really great to live in day by day.
2: I did watch your interview with uh, Peter Hitchens, and I was sort of struck (laughs) by the the, the narrative that uh, you know Gen Z should essentially give up and leave, uh, give up and leave Britain because because it because it just raises the question of uh, well, 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 what is the alternative narrative? That we should be giving young people so what, what are the alternative what are the reasons to fight what are the reasons to stay and fight and take action uh, and that needs to be articulated much more clearly and directly by the conservative movement because mm. the great retreat or this mm. sense of resignation that is palpable across all generations by the way there is a sense among many people that maybe things are just moving at such a pace that that change is impossible Um, And it would be a very, it would be a real shame if that sense of resignation really uh, became dominant rather than a
1: a sense of determination. Well, yeah, because projections of inevitable doom become self-fulfilling in that way, don't they? Yeah. If you're you're peddling them. But in any case, Matt, it's been a real pleasure to have you on Deprogrammed. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Mm, Evan, thanks as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment if you wish, and we shall see you on the next one.
0: Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free, just remember, to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.